Today, we are talking to a case management supervisor. Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. believe that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook, or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. This is Jack, and I'm here with Kat, and today we have a special guest in the studio. We have Irene from Case Management. Welcome, Irene. Hi. Irene, I have a very important question for you. What is your favorite drink at Starbucks? Um, so I'm not really a big coffee drinker, but I do love Starbucks's uh, refreshers. So my go-to drinks to them are the gummy bear, the pink drink, and the kiwi starfruit if I'm wanting something kind of sour and sweet. Okay, I love the pink drink. I have never heard of the gummy bear. Is that new? The gummy bear is on kind of like their secret menu. Um, So I actually saw it from somebody else who posted it on social media. And I tried it, and it is delicious. Can you please tell us uh, what your position is and what that entails in a general sense? So my current position is a case management supervisor, and my days are so different. Um, They go from being in staffings back-to-back all day, court hearings, uh, supervision with my case managers. I could sit in MDT meetings, reviewing court documents, uh, ELC referrals, tracking, placement disruptions for kids, um, and helping my assistant program director. So that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, that's a busy... (laughs) I don't even know what half of that means. That's a lot. That's a lot. (laughs) Irene, what was your first experience with foster care? Like, did you know someone in foster care? I actually can't say that I knew anybody in foster care growing up. It wasn't until I moved down here to Florida that I was teaching at a daycare and I had a little boy who would get picked up by their grandparents. Mm -hmm. And these were kind of older grandparents. And I had a meeting with them just to go over his behavior and things like that because he was really acting out. And they let me know that this was actually their great grandson and that they had raised his mother because she had gotten removed from her parents and the same thing has happened to them. So they not only have raised their own children, but also their grandchild and now their great-grandchild. Oh, my. Like, what? Like, that is such the picture of the cyclical nature of yeah. trauma and removal. And, mm-hmm. oh, my gosh. I still think of him to this day and wonder if he is back with mom or not because a lot was going on with her. And she, right before I left that job, she was slowly coming back into his life. Oh, God. Wow. I hope she got him back. Me too. 
What drove your decision to go into social work or case management? Um, so I've always loved kids since the time I was maybe in middle school. Um, my mom called me the Pied Piper of children. Like I Aww. just attracted them. I started out college wanting to be a teacher um, in special ed and that kind of changed, but I've always just loved working with kids. So I've been a preschool teacher, I've been a babysitter, a nanny, a mommy's helper, and then this job just kind of fell into my lap, um, kind of just due to circumstances and people that um, I knew. So I interviewed for a job. I do have my background in social work, um, but hadn't had an opening to really get into the field. So. I love to love and I love kids and I think our kids that are under supervision of the state really need as much love and care that they possibly can get. Well, that's definitely the truth. Can you tell us about your formal education? So I have my background in psychology and I have a bachelor's in social work and a half done minor in graphic design and photography. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> um, would you say that that education that you received prepared you for your position, or do you feel like it's really a lot more of the hands-on stuff that has given you the knowledge that you need? I think it's definitely a lot more hands-on. You know, you can sit and teach till your face is blue, but unless you're actually in the field and doing the work, you really aren't applying or thinking about anything that you learned. It's a lot different than what I've learned in college and my internships that I've done. Mm -hmm. um, I did do an internship with um, a domestic violence agency my senior year in college, and that was definitely eye-opening. It was a lot different than, you know, your normal substance abuse relationships. Mm -hmm. That probably was the biggest thing that I noticed was is what I was learning was definitely not what I was physically seeing out in the workplace. Interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. What would you say to someone who's considering becoming a social worker? Um, I would definitely say that this job is not for the faint of hearts. Mm -hmm. um, you really need to have thick skin to do this job. I have been cussed out. I have been called every single name in the book. I have had coworkers who have had their lives threatened. It's not a job that you can just think you're going to sit and push paper with. You know, we are physically out in the field seeing kids being in people's homes, if you're not comfortable doing that, then you're not going to last very long. <laughs> what do you think would make someone a good uh, case manager? I definitely think you have to have that work ethic. You can't just sit around and think that things are going to be handed to you. Um, it's a lot of making sure you're documenting every single thing because if you get a case that goes to termination of parental rights trial, you best believe you better have that documentation or yeah. your state attorney is coming for you. So you definitely have to make sure that you are documenting everything, that you are on top of your time management, you're organized, and you're staying focused because it's very easy to get swept up in the drama of a case and needing to know, like, this is drama. This doesn't have anything to do with the case that I'm actually working with. Right. That's true. And that's something that we were talking about um, with um, – read is about making sure you're looking at the difference between the truth and the emotions. I feel like this is the type of job that 
you know, you have you have to do all this education for, you have to do all this preparation for, you get the job and then you start doing it. And it really is such a hard thing to do. And like you're saying, it's not for the faint of heart. You know, we see a lot of turnover with case management. How do you, how do you prepare someone properly for a job like this that you really don't know what you're getting into until you're doing it? Um, I think that a lot of field experience is necessary. That is one thing when you're hired, I don't know about other agencies, but especially my agency, um, you do an academy kind of thing. But that's more or less learning like statue, codes, conduct, all that kind of stuff. It doesn't actually prepare you to actually physically do the job. I was lucky enough when I came out of the pre-service that I had a couple of case managers who have been doing this for quite a while and didn't sugarcoat anything for me. Yeah. Um, I made it a point to shadow those case managers that were really show like dedicated. They were there at like 8.30 in the morning. They were doing work. They were making phone calls. I was like, those are my people. Those are the ones that I want to see how they're handling things, how they're, you know, approaching things, what they do in court, what they do in their home visits. I'm very much type A and I always (laughs) like to know what I'm getting myself into. So I think that for me really prepared me for what this job was going to bring into my life. It's a lot. I'm not going to lie. It Every day is different. And there's been times where I'm just like, I don't know if I can keep going. Right. But at the end of the day, I always remind myself, you know, I love what I do. My kids are safe that I have on my case. So um, my court documents are done. You know, I can't do more than what my 40 hours a week is going to allow me to do. Um. So you mentioned field experience. I almost feel like because the stakes are so high in case management, as we were saying in, a, in another episode, like you guys could be held criminally responsible if things aren't done a certain way. Mm-hmm. And that's like a really big responsibility for these young kids that are coming out of school and suddenly have these um, cases that they're handling. Is this not the type of career that they do internships or do they do internships? We actually have, since I've started, we have had quite a few interns with us who spend entire days with us they go to court with us they go into home visits they see how we do our home visits and again I like I said I like to watch the people who have been doing this longest who are dedicated and there um, and I go from what they did so we have had quite a few interns that have gone to call the colleges around and they have seen what goes on, they know what they're getting into, and they don't actually have to do the pre-service that we normally have to do. Um, So I think that's really helped them, and quite a few of them have said that they're really thankful for that experience. Can you give me a word that someone would use to describe someone in case management? There's not a single word that really describes case management. Um, some would say organized chaos. Um, I feel it's beautiful chaos. (laughs) So it's kind of, you know, you have to be organized in the chaos that you're living in because it is kind of chaotic. You're, you're trying to focus on one thing and something else will happen. And then you have to literally remember where you were. So Mm -hmm. I, I'm very organized. I keep schedule. And if I'm in the middle of doing something, I like save it because, We've had those moments where your computer goes down and you didn't save it and you lose everything. So I would definitely say it's an organized chaos. Can you tell me 
like we're in the state of Florida, what the law is about how many cases you can have. So the Florida statute doesn't say how many cases you have, but how many kids you can have on your case load. Okay. Um, by Florida statute, you are to carry around 25 kids. Okay. When you have these kids assigned to you, you're responsible for checking on each one of them. Is it every uh, 20-something days, right? So by Florida statute, it's every 30 days, but every agency has their own okay. regulations that they go by. And it can be, I always do the rule of thumb. Um, I do every 23, 22 days because... If, let's say, like a kid is on vacation, their caregivers forgot to tell me, I do have a little bit of wiggle worm uh, space that I can, you know, finish that home visit and get that note entered into the system. That's smart. Okay, so you have to check on the kids. Obviously, when the kids need services, you're responsible for putting referrals in, stuff like that. But you also, so you have to do all this stuff with the kids. You have to do all this stuff with the parents, and then you have to do all this legal and administrative stuff as well. So when we're dealing with ki- our kids on our caseloads, we're doing home visits every 22, 23 days. We're making sure that they are going to the doctor regularly if they're younger, making sure that they, you know, their immunization records are up to date. If they're over the age of three, we're making sure that they have dental appointments every six months and requesting all those records. We're making sure that we're requesting school records, making referrals for any kind of necessary providers that they need, you know, therapy, any medical additional services that they need, whether it's, you know, a child who is autistic, um, that they're going to all of their doctor's appointments for that. I have kids that, you know, go to physical therapy, occupational therapy, all (laughs) kinds of therapies. I've got those kids too. (laughs) So it's, there's a lot that goes in, you know, making sure that the caregivers are also, you know, getting, you know, the attention they need too. Because if I'm not following up with my caregivers, I don't feel like I'm doing my job because also they're the ones taking these kids to the appointment, making sure that, you know, there's nothing that they need to, and it, need from me and you know making sure that they have medicaid coverage if the doctors need to be changed over i'm do- making sure that's changed making <laughs> sure a child has visits with their parents you know yeah, and sibling um, visits and sibling visits if they're not together i have to say i haven't had too many siblings separated so that's i think good. that's really good that we yeah. i've been able to maintain those bonds and that relationship um when it comes to like the bio parents it's a lot of Giving them referrals, making sure they're going to their providers, following up with their providers. So just sorry to stop you there. In case someone isn't in child welfare, a referral for a parent would be something like a a so referring them to daycare so that they can do their case plan tasks, whether whether it's substance abuse, domestic violence, parenting classes. Um, so you're writing up the paperwork that will tell them they have to go to this place and get either take a class, get a an evaluation of some sort, get a drug test, those types of things. Yeah. So all of that you're doing, and that's the referral part of Mm -hmm. it. Requesting all those provider records that they're going to, because it's not just one provider. We have many providers that we work with here in the state of Florida. Um, So making sure that we have releases of information so that we can get those, because if a parent doesn't sign that, I can't prove that this parent is actually doing the necessary steps to bring their child home. And when you go to court... 
you're the one they're asking for that. Yeah. If I don't have that, the judge is asking me, what am I actually doing? <laughs> so I make sure that when I'm laying eyes on my, that's another thing. I have to lay eyes on parents every 30 days as well. So really? we need to make face-to-face contact with them, whether, you know, now either it's video visits or actually going to their home and seeing them. Um, and we have to log that because that's part of our funding that we get from our, you know, our lead agency. Um, so there's a lot that goes in with bio parents, just, you know, being there for them if they have questions or concerns. Um, we wear many hats for parents. So <laughs> that's a fun, they're, they're always so fun. And I have to say, I haven't really had a parent that has really given me a struggle. They're always so active and wanting to hit the ground running even before we go to court the initial court hearing so I have really been lucky to have parents which I I can't say that they always stay on the straight and narrow you know you know relapse is part of recovery Um, and we see a lot of the substance abuse that comes into the state of Florida so there's a lot that goes into the parents because they're also one of our main focuses because if the parent isn't doing what they need to do then I need to figure out how to bridge that barrier that they're having so that we can get them to reunification with their child. And then working with foster parents or relatives or non-relatives, just making sure that we're in constant communication because they're basically the ones giving me all the information for my kids, you know, where their kid, where this kid is, what they're doing, how they're doing, making sure that they feel supported because it's not just one child they have in their house sometimes. It could be multiple children. So making sure that they're getting the necessary things that they need. Um, again, a lot of the stuff for caregivers kind of rolls into the child because if I'm not providing those referrals for any kind of therapies or um, doctor's appointments and things like that, then they really can't, you know, provide the necessary care for these children. Yeah, that's impressive. That's a lot of stuff. There's probably more than I'm missing. I'm, I'm sure <laughs> probably. That there is. Um, do you know how, what's the, what's the average length of time that a case manager stays in their job? Um, It really depends. You have some case managers that have been doing this for 15 plus years, and this Mm -hmm. is their job. This is what they do. This is their life. Then there are other case managers who do it for maybe a year, year and a half, and they're like, I can't do it anymore. Um, I've been doing this about three years now, and my big focus was that I wanted to be as engaged, as knowledgeable as I possibly could before I started moving up the ladder um, with my agency. And I, you know, am now a supervisor and I pride myself that I, you know, know so much and I can support more case managers um, as they're coming into our agency. Do you remember a couple of years ago when the turnover rate at one of the Pinellas agencies was 100%? Yeah, they are actually still having a lot of turnover yeah. oh, right now. Yeah. Um, I, I can't really speak upon what's going on right. in Pinellas, but um, just because I simply don't right. know. You know, being a case manager, we have kids that are placed, you know, from Pinellas into our area, and it's difficult just for us to get a hold of them. Either they're not responding to their text messages or their emails, even their supervisors are hard to get a hold of. So it's, they're struggling a lot down there, and I wish there was more that we could do for, you know, to support, not just support them, but 
support each other. This is a very difficult job. Oh, 100%. Do you think the high turnover is because they didn't have appropriate expectations of what the job entails? Or do you think it's just difficult to work in the system? And I think it's a little bit of both. I think the system is definitely difficult to work in. There is a lot of flaws in the system, um, unfortunately. There's a lot of things that could that need to change. And I think that, you know, the higher agency that does all of our stuff is really taking the necessary steps to try and bridge those barriers that everybody's facing. But I think at the end of the day, we just need more support. We don't have enough time in our in our day to get done what we really need to get done. And it's, you know, it's always something new. It's a you know, we have what we need to do, our court documents, our home visits, you know, the staffings, the meetings, the court and stuff like that that we have to do. But on top of that, like, we're always getting hit with a, new, a checklist here, a checklist there. Like, those small, tedious things that keep being implemented take up more time than what we actually really need to do. Mm-hmm. That sounds like maybe the hardest part. Yeah. yeah. What's the most rewarding part about being a case manager? I have to say, whenever I do my home visits and seeing how excited the kids are to see me, Uh it's definitely rewarding because if I could just spend all my time with the kids that I have in my (laughs) caseload, I would be happy. But I think just knowing that you, that that child that has gone through so much, whether it's domestic violence, seeing their parents using drugs, um, you know, we see a lot of sexual abuse as well. So just knowing that they find comfort in seeing you every, mm-hmm. you know, couple of weeks really makes me feel like I am making a change and I have given that child some kind of a comfort that they feel safe yeah. when they see me. Yeah. What is the hardest thing you've been through as a case manager? I would have to say that the hardest thing I've been through is I've had a couple of really high-risk cases. Um, I can't really talk about the genre of where they came from, but one was very medically needy and the other came in um, due to sexual abuse. Um, So I have to say just trying to put your emotions away when dealing with these cases is probably really hard because you always are going to feel some type of way and you really have to separate your feelings from your work and making sure that you are providing the best care that this child can possibly get while they are under your supervision. Yeah, I I can't imagine. I know it's hard even as a foster parent to try and create the relationships with the biological parents sometimes when you know what has happened and you know it's you know we also have to understand that a lot of the things that happen are due to trauma that they've experienced on their own and unmet mental health needs yeah Yeah. it it definitely is eye-opening because you know we all grew up you know in a very stable home safe loved well taken care of and to see how some of these kids come into care it's it's like you want to scoop them up and just give them all the love that they haven't been getting Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) if you had unlimited resources and no red tape to deal with what could we do better for kids in care i think one thing that i would definitely do is make sure that case managers are paid properly Mm -hmm. um we are 
underpaid and underloved. Um, it's not something new. Everybody knows it. Um, I definitely would use that money to buy houses throughout the state of Florida so that we didn't have kids in transition. Kids that are literally going to placements at 11, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning that mm-hmm. these kids can go and have a room of their own while they're waiting to go home to their parents that they can call their own. Um, another thing is, is I think we need better providers, um, for our kids, like day programs and things like that. I would love if I had the ability and the money to buy a good piece of property and just build the biggest building on there where there's basketball courts, there's games, there's a swimming pool, there's a kitchen where they can go and eat whenever they want. They don't have to worry about, you know, oh, am I going to get yelled at if I, like, go and take a snack? Mm-hmm. Any kind of facility that these kids can literally just go and relax. A library for kids to read, computers for them to use, which technology is another issue in itself when it comes to our teenagers especially. <laughs> but also there would be two side sections, one for girls, one for boys, where they had, you know, they could, if they're in transition, they had a bed to go sleep in, and they mm-hmm. didn't have to worry about, you know, sitting in a car, driving for hours on end. Yeah. Um, I really would love to provide something for them that's, you know, better than what we're working with right now, and that's not to take away from, you know, the day programs we have currently, because there are some really great ones, but I think that these kids get into so much trouble because they don't, they're not engaged they're in bored. things. They're bored. <laughs> they're, you know, sitting on technology. Like, I was raised to go outside. You have a good time with your friends in the neighborhood. See you at dinner. You can't, yep, those streetlights come on. Mom's calling you in for dinner. You know, we spent hours at night after the lights came out playing manhunt, you know. Mm-hmm. I grew up on, you know, a pretty good neighborhood, and I think that's the issue. Technology plays a big issue, and kids are just it bored. It does. Yeah. Being trauma-informed, I think, is probably one of the things I would say that everybody should be knowledgeable because this job comes with kids who are, you know, coming from trauma. You know, I talked about it previously. There's uh, sexual abuse. There's substance abuse. You know, I've had kids who physically can tell me how to smoke cocaine or heroin or shoot it up, and it's like... You're four. You should not know how to do this. And mm-hmm. I think if more people were trauma-informed and trained, that they would understand a little bit more of these kids' behaviors and mm-hmm. why they're behaving that way. Because a child's not just going to act out for no reason. Mm-hmm. There's something underlying that's going mm-hmm. to cause this behavior. I know. I think I read or heard it recently is that the behaviors are the way the child communicates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So behavior is not behavior. It, behavior is communication. communication. Yeah. And it's important not to react, you know, not to be reactive, not to take it personally, but to see it as communication. Yeah. What can foster parents do to help case managers do their job better or to be more productive? Um, I definitely think that foster parents um, could help us by, you know, transportations, for instance. Um, if we were to go out and take a kid to a doctor, it could be almost like two, three hours of our time. Um, that's probably, that's may sound like a little bit of time, but in our lives and our work, it's a lot. 
um, providing us with, you know, medical documents. I have a foster parent who every time she takes the kid to the doctor, she's sending me a picture of their updated medical records or their immunizations Mm -hmm. um, because those are always so difficult for us to get. And doctor's offices, as of lately, have really been very difficult to get any kind of records. So um, any kind of records that they could provide us and then we file those records so that we know that everything's going, you know, accordingly for the child. I had one foster parent who refused to um, transport a child to their visits um, at our local visitation center. And this was a caregiver who worked from home. You know, this was an only child in their house. And I was driving all the way, almost an hour to where they are, an hour back to the visitation center, waiting two hours, and then taking the child back. That's pretty much my entire day. Mm-hmm. And that's one instance. But I do, you know, I think just communicating with the, the case manager and telling them, hey, I'm so okay with, you know, taking kids to their doctor's appointments, taking them to dental appointments, you know, that those are hours out of our day that we just can't ever get back. I think that's Probably the biggest thing and the biggest help for us is just helping with any kind of transportation that this kid may or may not need um, would definitely help us out. I'm always surprised when I hear foster parents that don't, and maybe it's different if you work full time and you have a lot of appointments, but I can't imagine having someone else take my kids, foster, adopter, whatever, like to a doctor's appointment. I want to know everything. I want to I want to make sure I'm mm-hmm. the one taking care of them. I want to make sure that I know yeah. everything that I need to do and anything that I could be doing better for them. So, I would definitely also encourage any foster parents to never have someone else take your kid to a a, a doctor or dental appointment unless you have no other option. Um what do you think biological parents can do to um work better with you? Um I would definitely say communicating with us. We, you know, we have a lot going on in our day and part of their case plan is communicating with us every 14 days. Um asking us for updated referrals. There are times where parents, you know, don't finish a case plan and then they just sit and don't do anything and then they yell at us because they didn't know what they were supposed to do, but you know, communicating that they need updated referrals or they're like, oh, hey, here are my pay stubs because I just got paid and I got a raise the other, the other week and you know, you can see that. Or providing us with any kind of um, you know, documents that they can get from their providers that they're working with with their substance abuse or their you know, domestic violence, giving us their certificates so we can file them with court and show that they're physically completing all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, if they're taking the time to take a class, they should probably take the time to send you the form so that... They do, and then they're like, well, I sent it to my attorney, but not all the time do their attorneys file it with court, and then I'm like, well, send it to me. Like, yeah. I'm your person. I yeah. should. I am your main point of contact. And if they're emailing, they could just CC, right? Yes. Yeah, I think that a lot of times um, parents don't realize that even though their kids aren't with them, that they can still be a proactive parent by doing those things. Like that is parenting. You're mm-hmm. when you are like actively engaged in your case plan, you are being a parent. Yeah, because you are doing things to get your kids back, and you are learning to be a parent in other ways, and you're taking parenting classes, and then so doing those things is how you are parenting. Right. So, you know, when I talk to parents and they're saying things like, I, you know, I miss them so much, and I walk by their room, and I, you know, I'm usually trying to tell them things like, well, the way you can parent right now is by 
finishing these classes and turning in your paperwork and like add everything to the list and then you know I also encourage them in other ways too but that is a way that they can parent while their kids are out of their care and it's funny you say that because I was just doing a staffing the other day and the parent was like I'm not doing a case plan I'm not doing this like I want my kid back and we tried to explain to them you working your case plan that you accepted and agreed in front of the judge under oath is how you're going to get your kid back. I know that it's difficult in this time and your emotions are valid, but the best way to ensure that your child is coming back is that you're actively engaging in your classes and you're participating in your classes because I don't know if a lot of parents know this, but when they work with, let's say, daycare, when we request records from daycare, there are notes that say parent was actively engaged, parent you know, Mm -hmm. gave supportive information, parent completed, you know, lessons that were provided to the class and things like that. So just being as fully active and engaged as you possibly Mm -hmm. can is a great way to, you know, be working for your child because ultimately that's the end goal Uh is to change your behavior that brought your child into, Mm -hmm. you know, the custody of the state. What do you think the biggest challenges are for working with biological parents as a case manager? I think the biggest challenge is that a lot of them come in in denial and they just feel like they've been attacked. They have had their child ripped out of their, you know, their lives and their homes. And I think that's the biggest thing that I've noticed a lot is they're like, well, you removed my child. You did this. And I'm like... I didn't remove your child. That's not my job. I don't ever want to go into somebody's house and remove a child. My end goal is bringing your child home safely and, you know, calmly back into the home. When a case comes in initially, they are in such an anger and resentment and they're still, you know, they could still actively be using drugs. So, you know, their mindset really isn't where you know, somebody who isn't using drugs is at. So just, you know, reiterating to them, like, yeah, your va- your emotions are valid. I understand where you're coming from, but you and I are going to work together to make sure your child comes home at the end of the day. Yeah. What, one of the things that I've kind of discovered over the past year or two is just, you know, I used to want to like get that connection with the parent as quick as possible and, um, you know, start co-parenting and start sharing information because I feel like if I was in that situation, I would want someone to reach out to me and share information and pictures about my kid and just let me know they're safe, you know, um, instead of like in this black hole of the foster care system. But I think um, maybe just from having some not so fun experiences with parents, I've, I've kind of come to be like, you know, I'm going to give them a few weeks. Um, because that initial stage, and I would feel the same way if someone had just removed my kids, especially if I didn't understand, you know, if I had been parented in such a way that I didn't, I didn't learn how to create a safe home for my child and they were removed. And I feel like, you know, I wasn't removed or maybe I was, but I went back. What could I have, um, possibly done wrong to lose my kids? And then the anger that you feel because nothing hits your emotions like your kids you know Mm -hmm. if somebody goes for my kids like I'm like big mama bear on you you know so I just feel like it's your most vulnerable it's everybody's Achilles heel is their kid so in that time period it's almost almost like when a woman has just given birth like the emotions and the hormones Mm -hmm. and I just kind of feel like I need to give them a little space unless you know if somebody reaches out to me more than happy to do what needs to be done but just definitely not 
being so uh, proactive initially and giving them some space to kind of understand what's going on before I become a villain in their life, (laughs) in their life story. I don't think it's looking at it as being a villain, but also trying to remind them that, you know, this person is caring for your child. They are keeping them safe. They are well-fed. They are well-clothed. They are interacting with other kids their own age. And, you know, they're keeping your child until you can take them home. And it's not... I've had quite a few foster parents who have said the same thing, um, who they're like, you know, I don't mind supervising visits or interacting with the parents, but I need to know that they are starting to do what they need to do to bring their child home. They they just need that reassurance that like that everything is going okay and then they jump into the mixture and I have to praise those foster parents because they're the ones closest to the kids and you know any parents going to be like, "Oh, well they're not doing this for my child. They're not doing that." They they're always going to nitpick, but yeah. you know, it's us case managers who are bringing them back. They were like, okay, well, how'd your child look today? And they were like, oh, they look happy and ha- healthy. And I'm like, that's because they're being provided, you know, food, they're clothed, they're enjoying whatever the foster parents are doing. They're enjoying the other kids. So it's always trying to rationalize with them and bring them back to realizing that at the end of the day, their kid is safe and I happy. I mean, we are licensed to parent. We're the only <laughs> parents that are licensed to do it. So not to brag, but speaking of which, what are your biggest challenges in working with us foster parents? Um, I think the biggest challenge is there are some foster parents who take their role as a foster parent a little too far. Like they start to believe that this child is theirs and nobody else's and they start refusing to allow any kind of contact with their parents or, you know, any visits with their sibling because if the siblings are separated, there's a chance that we might want to place that sibling with their other sibling. Mm-hmm. Um, so they can kind of take this their role to a whole nother level, which causes, you know, case managers more of a hassle because they're like, this isn't your, you know, it's hard to tell somebody like, this isn't your kid and offend them. And then they're like, well, you can remove this child from my care then if you're, <laughs> if that's how you're going to be it. Mm-hmm. So I think just the, the ability that a foster parent can basically say no to anything is difficult because if we're all supposed to be working together, we should all be working together and not viewing it as like, well, this child's mine now. It's in my custody. And it's like, Technically, I'm their caregiver, and I they're under my custody. I'm the one who has to sign all their paperwork. But, um, yeah, I've had a, quite a few foster parents who take it to the next level, and it's it, it, it makes our job harder because then the parents are getting upset because they're like, you know, this is my child. This is, you know, I want to bring them home, and it's becoming even more difficult for them. Yep, know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> what would you want foster parents to know about case management? I think that... a not just foster parents, but I think a lot of people don't realize a lot of the ins and outs that we do during a day. Like I've given you guys like a layout of a lot of stuff, but there's even more that I'm probably even forgetting. So I think that just remembering that this is our job and it's not us just like coming into your lives and trying to, you know, cause even more chaos. Um, that's really not like what we're trying to do. We're trying to ensure like this child's safe, this child's happy, any of their needs are being met. And we're really not trying to cause more drama or more chaos in your lives. You know, we really want to, we want to work together as, you know, a cohesive unit 
to ensure that this child goes home to their parents at the end of the day and making sure that you're having issues with me, you know, bring it up to me. Be like, hey, I really don't appreciate how you did this. Like, how can we move forward? Or, you know, if I'm not answering my phone, like bringing it up to my supervisor, you know, just there are so many things that I think that foster parents don't realize that we do. If I had like a second, I would literally be taking it to breathe. (laughs) <laughs> because I, I, we're always on the go. We're either in our car, we're in court, we're, we're doing multiple things. I mean, just this week, I was on two different staffing. So I had my phone going with a staffing with my, you know, headphone in. And then I was sitting in a staffing, you know, on my computer, you know, we're always multitasking too. And we just, we need them to understand that we're going through just as much stuff, if not more, at the end of the day. Um, so when we're talking about partners, we're talking about, like, the guardian program, licensing, foster parents, you mm-hmm. know, the attorneys. What do you want all of these partners to know about case management? I think our our attorneys know our in, ins and outs and everything, all moving parts, because we work very closely with them. Um, so they know, like, when our you know, our caseloads go up, when our caseloads go down, when we have people leaving, things like that. Um, I think our guardians need to know that they're not just our only ones working with because there's times where a guardian's, like, constantly emailing me, like, every 20 minutes, and I'm, like, or calling me or texting me, and I have to, like, quickly shoot a text me, like, hey, I'm in the middle of something I can't talk right now. Give me time. <laughs> um, you know, it's, I think that's our biggest issue is that we don't have time. We, we really don't. And I think that's what a lot of people don't realize is our time is literally scheduled out months in advance. Like, I have staffings all the way up until, like, December right now. Mm-hmm. So it's we don't have time. There's times where, like, I'll be like, hey, I really don't have time right now can you, like, write whatever you need to talk to me down, and we can talk about tomorrow. I have free time tomorrow. Um, so. <laughs> so what we need is more hours in the day and more yes. case managers available to you. Yeah. yeah. You need to have less cases <laughs> and less kids on your caseload. Um, what do you do to keep from burning out and keep from losing focus? Um, I, like I said, I'm very type A. I am engrossed in everything I do. Um, there's not... You, I could literally rattle off all my cases to you right now and tell you every single thing that's happened. Like, that's how involved I am. But I also think that's my biggest weakness is because I'm so focused that I don't realize I'm burning myself out. Um, it wasn't until really COVID hit that I was sitting at home and I could look at my computer screen. And I'm like, I can't see what's right in front of my face. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I've noticed... For me, at least, I notice when I start to not lose focus. And that's normally around, like, between noon and 2 o'clock. So I always make it a point to get up, put my computer down, and I take my dog for a walk. Um, Just to get out, get away from it. We do a walk around our neighborhood. I grab the mail. I go back. I grab something to eat. And then I sit back down. Um, it gives me time to kind of refocus my mind. Um, I also have anxiety. Um, it's something that's come out more since I've taken this job. Mm -hmm. And I've had it since I probably was in high school, but it's, this job really heightens it a lot. 
So I've actually worked with a therapist to help me better focus myself, calm myself down because I, my emotions get heightened. You know, we deal with cases every day and for 12 months or longer. Um, So we have a lot invested in this job and it's, it's taken me a lot to figure out what helps me. And I go for almost a three mile walk almost every morning. I, it's, gotten a lot hotter so I haven't really done it um and I'm slacking but I really try to make sure that I chisel out that time just to refocus myself even for 15-20 minutes just walking away Mm -hmm. not taking my work phone leaving it whatever's going on on my work phone it'll be there tomorrow I can't stress about that you know I need to there are other things in this job that need focus and that phone can literally wait until I get back to it. What symptoms do you have when you're starting to get around of trauma fatigue? <sighs> My anxiety definitely heightens. I have had panic attacks that I have worked through. I really try to leave it at the door. That's the one thing. Working from home, it's so difficult to leave it at the door. But there, it's it's funny because um, it, I was done working, but I was on the phone talking with a coworker. And she was just telling me about what was going on and I was telling her stuff. And then my partner walked in and he was like, I've never heard you talk about that before. And I was like, because I don't want to bring that into our home, into our relationship, because it's a lot. It's a lot for one person to take on. I was like, I'm not trying to give you that kind of like (laughs) stress and whatnot. So I really try to leave it at the door and not focus on it because... The more you think about something, the more it's just going to bother you and irritate you and you're going to lose sleep over it and it's not worth it. Uh, What self-care tips do you have for social workers and foster parents and other people in child welfare? Take that time. If you have the ability to step away or take a day, take it. Um, Since being supervisor, that's something I've talked with my case managers about is If you're noticing that you're getting fatigued and you're not focused, tell me and I will cover whatever you need me to cover, but take that time to yourself. There was a time where I went almost seven and a half months without taking a day off. I was like, you need to take that time. I was like, I don't care what's going on. I will handle it for you. And that's the same thing that my supervisor said. She's like, because I communicated a lot with my supervisor that I was like, I just, I can't focus. I'm foggy. I can't think. I, I literally can't even look at my computer and comprehend what I'm what I'm supposed to be doing right now. She's like, whatever you have going on, step away. And that's what I think is the biggest thing is if you have that time, take it. When we were in the office, we had such a close camaraderie and we supported each other. It's changed now that we're working from home and we really aren't able to be around each other like we used to. We talk about it all the time, like, can we just go back to the office? And it's like, no, you really can't. There's no way to like social distance all of us, you know. Mm-hmm. I think just having talking to your coworkers that also are going through it, you know, they're the best people to talk to. What are some of the main reasons that kids come into care? A lot of substance abuse and domestic violence. Mm -hmm. Um, If you really think of the makeup of Florida, it's not really Florida people. It's a lot of transient people Mm -hmm. who um, come down here to get away from it all, wherever they are at. 
um, and then they get sucked up into the life down here. Um, I believe that Florida is the third or fourth biggest human trafficking state. Yeah. You know, if you think about it, Florida is surrounded by water. You know, people can bring people in, you know, and it's not checked. Um, we don't have border controls or anything like that. Um, so a lot of human trafficking comes through Florida that we work with. Um, a lot of our teens get human trafficked if they, they run, you know. So we are seeing that's pretty much the biggest you know, populations of substance abuse. Everything's being brought into Florida. Um, people from outside of Florida bring things into Florida, and it just runs rampant. Human trafficking, you know, Florida has a lot of strawberry fields and a lot of blueberry fields, and that's what, you know, we have a lot of festivals. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of those workers are human trafficked into our state. What do you think the community can do to lessen the number of kids that come into foster care? Supporting one another is a big thing that we can do. We have a lot of relative and non-relatives that are here in the state of Florida, which I think is a big support to families. Mm -hmm. That's where they lose it, is that support, Mm -hmm. in all honesty. And I think coming together as a community, because we do have really high numbers here in the state of Florida, not just, you know, in our county, but other counties as well. Um, I think seeing it more uh, for what it is, and it's not that, you know, these parents are bad. They just, you know, get involved, unfortunately. And, you know, they love their kids at the end of the day. So I think just coming together to support each other is really important. I think so, too. What are your goals to make change in the community? I have really gotten into human trafficking. I think that's probably our biggest issue in here and I really love the foundation that Redefining Refuge has. Um, She's amazing and I think a lot of people have that I have seen a lot of social media coming together trying to figure out ways to support women who are human trafficked with children and things like that. Um, that is that is something I really want to change in our community is the knowledge and understanding the signs because they're there. We actually just did a human trafficking training where this woman was a doctor and she was so informed on the signs and the signals of being human trafficked that she was able to get the per- like the female's person out of the room so she could privately talk to him. I think just being informed on all of that and seeing the signs and helping whichever way you possibly can, that's that's where I want to change in our community is the, the perception of these women because, mm-hmm. you know, these aren't women who are choosing to do this. They're being forced to do this. And I want that stigmatism to be changed for them. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you. And we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.